Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Is this just some monumental act of virtue signalling by our Prime Minister who wants to go down in history as the jolly green giant bringing a kind of cleaner world? The idea that the NHS is on its knees because of this virus and we need to lock down again because of the NHS, it just doesn't pass muster. I did like the Treasury's language where they said that there might be material fiscal consequences. (laughs) Are we really as MPs going to have some, you know, heavy with spaghetti coming out of their ear, you know, accompanying us as we go down the bread aisle in Sainsbury's? Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. This time next week, the global great and good will be mustering in Glasgow for the COP26 Climate Change Summit. How ironic that during the build-up to this overhyped gab fest, much of the Western world has been locked in an energy crisis. That's why, amidst spiralling oil and especially gas prices, we're about to witness the rather awkward spectacle of the Davos set signing the rest of us up to punishing decarbonisation targets (laughs) while literally begging the OPEC exporters cartel and the Russians to send us ever more fossil fuels, lest our winter energy bills spiral out of control. Back in June 2019, Theresa May made a unilateral and legally binding commitment the UK could reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050 without any real idea of how that would be achieved or paid for. A Treasury view of the costs of this immense undertaking has been delayed for months, but the commitment clearly involves an absolutely huge social and economic shift, with a burden of change most heavily shouldered by ordinary people. Green is good, said Boris Johnson this week, but mainstream politicians are now waking up to the fact that the Prime Minister's COP26 agenda, involving lots of expensive electric cars, will cost a pretty penny. And Alison is, quote, shocked and stunned, unquote, that the much-vaunted heat pumps that we'll all be having to fit, ripping out and (laughs) scrapping millions of perfectly good gas boilers in the process, may produce bath water that's merely tepid. Tepid? Tepid. The horror. (laughs) There's plenty about this week, co-pilot. We're still absorbing the sad death of Sir David Amos and James Brokenshire, two much-loved MPs who we both knew And the lockdown war drums are banging once more. But the main thing on your mind, I know, is that the steaming hot baths you enjoy from 2030 may involve boiling lots of kettles. (laughs) I don't actually have to... I have nothing to add to that introduction. I think (laughs) staying neutral about the, quotes overhyped gab fest. I mean, you know, (laughs) why don't you tell people what you think? Well... I do think I speak for certainly most of the female population when I say that the two worst words in the world, tepid shower. (laughs) This is going to surprise you, Halligan, but I do get quite tetchy when there isn't enough hot water at Pearson Towers. It's a bit like that scene in Chernobyl when the people in the control room (laughs) (laughs) realise. <laughs> Emergency. <laughs> well, you know, as you say, look, so ahead of COP26, the less said about that, the better. Boris did finally give us some detailed plans for turning Britain into a dark, frozen wasteland by 2035. I don't know what you think, Liam, but it, it does seem to me this is shaping up to be a bit of a bitter standoff between super rich globalists and everyone else, between those who can afford to virtue signal with a hydrogen boiler, while, of course, keeping an oil tank secret 
separately in the stable block just in case. The Prime Minister announced there are going to be grants of 5,000 to replace our gas boilers with heat pumps, but there'll only be 90,000 lucky people over three years to get those. And Ross Clark, actually, the ever brilliant Ross Clark of The Telegraph and The Spectator, crunched the numbers. He said that even with the five grand grant, it will still cost upwards of £5,000 to install the heat pump itself, plus another £10,000 to insulate your house well enough for the heat pump to work, not to mention installing huge radiators radiators which are bigger than many people's front rooms. So what do we think, Halligan? I'm thinking another wheeze for the sushi classes who already have an electric car as their second vehicle to pop to Waitrose in and burnish their eco-credentials. And these government subsidies, such as those for electric cars, they just favour the wealthy while piling on costs for poorer families at what you've just pointed out, it's hardly a marvellous time to do this to the British people, is it? I think as COP26 approaches, we are now starting the long overdue conversation that we need, the national debate about how we are going to actually achieve Theresa May's legally binding commitment. The Treasury says this will cost £50 billion a year between now and 2050. 50 billion? A year between now and 2050. I think that is a gross underestimate. And I think a lot of people in the Treasury think it's a gross underestimate too. And that's one reason why the Treasury has never released detailed working of where it got that figure from. It looks like a sort of back of the envelope calculation. It's all very well for the Prime Minister to host grand summits and feel Mm. fantastically good about himself But the cost implications of what we've signed up to really are extremely punishing. And it's not just for ordinary households, given that electric vehicles tend to cost on average double the price of ordinary vehicles. It isn't just the implications for our homes. Five grand, that's not going to get you a heat boiler. And as you say, those grants are limited and will no doubt be taken up by the sharp-elbowed middle classes who can afford to employ someone to do the admin and can probably afford the cost anyway. It's also our companies, Alison. Look at what's happening to our energy intensive industries like steel makers and other manufacturers who are being absolutely stymied by these sky high energy costs. And on top of that, they're paying, of course, green levies in their energy bills. There's no price cap for firms, of course. So, You know, I broadly support the idea of less pollution and even of decarbonisation, but it needs to be achieved in a much more sophisticated way using pricing and market mechanisms and proper incentives, not just in splurging in some absolute frenzy of virtue signalling that the Brits are going to do this because we're nice people Mm. and hang the cost because the posh political media class can afford the cost personally because many, many other households across the country, not to say many, many of our firms that employ millions of people, can't afford the huge restrictions which this COP26 agenda, spearheaded by the UK, is going to impose on them. Well, Boris was very bullish, wasn't he, in that kind of buoyant way, saying he's not afraid to lead the charge. History was never made by people sitting at the back of the class. And he also, Liam, I thought was rather boldly claimed that Russia and China are following our lead, even though it looks as though both President Xi and Putin are expected to snub the COP26 summit. And I noticed that China just announced plans to build even more coal-fired power plants and increase oil and gas exploration. There's a rather unfortunate image that someone came up with this week, which I thought was quite good. Are you ready for this? I'm braced. Right. So somebody said that it's all very well if Britain stops peeing in the swimming pool, but that won't mean that other people will stop peeing in the swimming pool. This is my fear, Liam, really, I suppose. Is is this just some monumental act of virtue signalling by our Prime Minister who wants to go down in history as the jolly green giant, you know, marvellous bringing a kind of cleaner world, while this is an act of self-harm for our nation, which really isn't in a fit state to take any more wounds at all. And and I I know you know an awful lot about all hydrogen and fission and, you know, all all these things I don't know about, but it seems to me that the government's taking this massive gamble 
on technology, which is still in its infancy. And Boris is hoping, perhaps even praying, that all this technology is going to reach maturity and come down rapidly in price, as, of course, microwaves and so on have done. But I've seen nothing to suggest that that's guaranteed to happen. I've seen online plumbers saying that servicing these heat pumps is an absolute joke. The parts for them are dreadful. So this this seems to be shaping up to be you know, a terrible farce. And and I don't know what you think, co-pilot, but I am really not on for being told that our industrial revolution, which rescued so many of our ancestors from lives of brutal, you know, hand-grubbing toil, was appalling. And we must now atone for the sins of our dirty past. No, I don't think so. No. You're right. Alison, the energy policy of the UK in particular, but much of the Western world, is a mess. If you ask me my personal view, I think the whole technology of electric vehicles using batteries, which themselves rely on rare earth elements that are largely found in pretty difficult countries, not least China, that rely on five times more copper than regular cars at a time when, again, copper is increasingly hard to get hold of and the price of it has lately been spiralling. I don't think that's the technology will eventually alight on. I think we will eventually alight on a hydrogen technology. The prototype hydrogen cars and and diggers and buses that I've seen are extremely impressive. The problem at the moment is actually obtaining the hydrogen through an electrolysis process. We're trying to find ways to generate, create hydrogen more cheaply and in turn using renewable energy. So the hydrogen is so-called green hydrogen People who know a lot more about this than me feel that we should be waiting until that hydrogen technology is there Mm. and incentivizing that hydrogen technology to come forward rather than setting up a, a network where we've got loads of electric charging points. There should be hydrogen filling points instead. And also... We should be using more nuclear energy, as I've said on Planet Normal before. Our nuclear capability in the UK, our civilian nuclear capability is creaking. We have many old reactors that are going to be decommissioned over the next few years, even though we were the original civilian nuclear power. We invented civilian nuclear energy as recently as the early and mid-60s. The UK was generating more nuclear power than the whole of the rest of the world put together. And yet our nuclear capabilities have withered badly. We're reliant on French, Finnish, American engineers to build our nuclear capability. And we've commissioned very little new nuclear capability. There's talk of so-called mini nuclear reactors made by Rolls-Royce. The technology certainly is on its way, but it will take several years, maybe even to the end of the decade until that is there. We should also be exploring, in my view, Alison, much, much more seriously so-called nuclear fusion. Nuclear fission is what we all know. That's where the atom is split. Nuclear fusion, and there has been big breakthroughs in this, is a different form of nuclear capability that holds huge promise. Before we go down this Roots, which I think is a dead end of electric vehicles. It's a mixed picture across the world. Yes, the Chinese are heavily reliant on coal, and we've you know, almost totally removed coal as a source of electricity in this country. But the Chinese are also building huge numbers of wind farms because they understand the strategic and ultimately the economic benefits of using renewable. But it's all about getting from here to there. We can't just dismiss the whole renewables agenda, in my personal opinion, as bunkum and and green nonsense. It really isn't. We do need to decarbonise and we do need to harness renewable energy and use our savvy and technical nous in order to make that happen. But we can't get from here to there as quickly as the politicians say we must And we can't get from here to there on the backs of ordinary working men and women who are facing serious cost of living increases anyway over the coming years 
as the Western world faces up to demographic issues, making our fiscal strength weaker. There's an awful lot of difficulties here to be faced. They can't be waved away by just accusing people who raise objections and concerns about the cost to some kind of denialists. These are very serious issues. I agree with you. Ross Clark has done some really good work on this for The Spectator Mm. and The Telegraph. Our own Philip Johnston just wrote a fabulous, fabulous fabulous column in the paper uh, the day that we're recording. People can see that online. We put it in the show notes to this episode. But finally, Alison, finally, analytical people are able to have conversations about these things without being dissed as being irresponsible simply for questioning this agenda. Yes, I did like the Treasury's language where they said that there might be material fiscal consequences. You know what that means, Halligan. Is there enough hot water for co-pilot Pearson's bath? So moving on to the other big story of the week, we know that the first call of the cuckoo is traditionally the harbinger of spring. Now the first call for a new lockdown is the sign of winter. I mean, Liam, what, what on earth's going on? I mean, we've got this media hysteria ramping up again, NHS under stress. Guess what? There's a new variant, the Delta Plus variant, ripping through the UK. Will it lead to a surge in hospitalizations and deaths? And Matthew Taylor, head of something called the NHS Confederation, has said, we are right on the edge. And Mr. Taylor warns of a looming crisis of the government fails to act immediately. Things are only going to get worse, says Matthew Taylor. So he's calling on the government to trigger plan B, which, Liam, guess what? Means more masks, ban on indoor gatherings, social distancing, working from home and vaccine passports to get into certain venues. Now, I don't know Mr. Taylor, but I noticed that after demanding these measures, he said, now there are inconveniences. I understand that, but they are minor inconveniences to relieve pressure on the health service. So I think, Copilot, we can see the thinking of the marvellous, arrogant health establishment restricting the lives of the public who pay £212 billion out of our taxes every year for healthcare. We must once again volunteer to surrender our freedom every time the NHS is going to be under pressure, which, as we know, is every single winter. So this is the catch-22. I cannot say this often enough. Because of lockdown, that Matthew Taylor will pop up and say, things are only going to get worse. Yes, because you keep repeating the same stupid mistake again and again. Rant over. Well, I know Matthew Taylor a bit, and he's not thick. He once dubbed me the Michael Caine of economics. (laughs) And he's a serious person who was head of the Downing Street Policy Unit, and he is a very, very good political strategist. But I don't think, with all respect, Matt, a sociology degree from Southampton makes you suitable to be advising the country to go into lockdown. You're not a scientist. Look, I agree with you that we're getting into, once again, some kind of downward spiralling doom loop. Cases are up. But guess what, Alison? If you look at the number of tests that we're doing, we are out testing pretty much the rest of the world. Listen to these numbers. And these are from Our World in Data, which is unanswerably authentic data source. So the Germans are doing less than two tests per thousand people per day. For COVID, the Americans are doing around four tests per thousand people per day for COVID. The French are doing around seven tests per thousand people per day. And the Brits are doing over 13 tests per thousand people per day. They're the seven day rolling averages, and you can see those figures on our world in data daily new COVID 19 tests per thousand people. Yes, cases are up. Overwhelmingly, these cases are among young people and overwhelmingly they are in schools. So among people who have very, very, very little chance of being harmed by COVID. We've got a huge proportion of the adult population double vaxxed. We have very low vaccine hesitancy in this country. It strikes me, with all respect to Matthew Taylor, that the people who are advocating instant lockdown once again. There's a lot of political mischief going on. A lot of people want the government to feel stitched up and cornered. But these are people who do not consider 
enough the costs of that lockdown, the economic costs of the lockdown, the mental health costs of renewed lockdown. And of course, this is going to be a tough winter for the NHS because we've got a five and a half million strong waiting list. Why? Because of the previous lockdown. That's why the waiting list is so huge. So you're right, Alison, there is a circularity to current official thinking and it's going to take a huge amount of political vim, brio and confidence for the government to resist the ever-rising drumbeat of demands for lockdown. You can see it at the moment. If you look at the pictures of the Labour Party MPs in the party conference, no masks. Mm. Now suddenly, if you looked at PMQs, they're all masked, every single one of them on the back benches, as if to try and put pressure on the government. I don't believe the opinion polls. I don't think there's nearly as much support for lockdown as the opinion polls suggest. The way the opinion polls questions are phrased, they're very leading And I think there's a big silent majority out there who's thinking, no, surely not. Cases are up. Yes, they're overwhelmingly among young people rather than 7,000 people being hospitalised per day as it was at the peak. It's just a few hundred every day. And that's a gross figure. If you look at the net figure, including people leaving hospital, it's small numbers. The NHS is not under threat from COVID anymore. No, well, you know, we have a very reliable source about this. Before we have a quick update from George, Liam, I just want to say, just to echo something we've been talking about a lot on Planet Normal, haven't we, is that the left has weaponized COVID to withhold services to ordinary people, be it among certain GPs, the lecturers union now threatening to go on strike again, even though many students like my son and I know your children haven't been having a proper education for over a year and some teaching unions. So there's an awful lot of mischief going on. On Planet Normal, we're very lucky, Liam, aren't we? Because we have this NHS England insider who is more able than Matthew Taylor to tell us what's actually going on in the NHS. Yes, indeed, Alison. George is a senior source of the NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics. That's why we report them. But by definition, we can't do the independent checks to verify the numbers that we'd normally do because George gives them to us before they're published, if they're published at all. Yeah, thanks, Liam. So, When you see the hysteria on the TV news tonight about uh, us needing a lockdown, let's just refer to George's remarks. The prevailing view in NHS England this week is that COVID admissions will remain stable, probably around the current level we're seeing. At the moment, other illnesses such as RSV in children and rhinovirus in adults are causing far more problems than covid Hospitalizations are up a bit, says George, compared to where they were two weeks ago, but still below where they were a month ago. Interestingly, we now have more people in hospital with COVID than we did on the same day a year ago. But last year, the numbers in hospitals were starting to accelerate, increasing by between 300 and 500 every day. At the moment, they're only increasing by between 30 and 50 a day. On the 1st of October 2020, that's last year, there were 2,061 COVID patients in hospital in England. By the end of that month, the number had risen to 9,751, almost a 400% increase. But on 1st of October this year, there were 4,795 COVID patients in hospital in England today. And that was on Monday when I was talking to George Copilot there are 5,354 COVID patients, and that's an increase of just 11%. And let's remind ourselves, Halligan, that 5,354 COVID patients out of 110,000 available hospital beds in NHS England, that is under 5% of all the patients in NHS England. And George says anyone trying to spin that as a problem A, knows nothing about comparative analysis and B, should hang their heads in shame. This is really interesting, Liam. On Planet Normal, we've talked a lot about the fact that the figures given on the news for COVID hospitalisations don't mean that many people went into hospital with the virus. 
people who go into hospital with a broken leg will be tested. And if they test positive, they will count as a COVID admission. So George says that this month, in-hospital diagnoses account for a whopping 60% of all so-called COVID hospitalizations. So Planet Normal listeners, when you see that number of daily COVID hospitalizations on the news, do bear in mind that only 40% of that number are being treated for COVID. It does put a completely different complexion on the situation. And huge thanks to George for that very reassuring picture. If listeners, you would like George to check the state of play in your local hospital, you can email George via us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk and please mark it for George Stats. Incredible numbers, Alison. I mean, as you're speaking, I'm looking at the ONS dashboard which I look at every day and I know you do as well. So if you think there are currently around 7,000 people with COVID-related conditions, whether or not they entered hospital because they had COVID, and that compares to almost 40,000 at the peak in January 2021. So we're at less than a fifth of where we were at the peak hospitalizations. And even at those peak hospitalizations, we're not saying that didn't impact the NHS. Of course, it did massively. But it's not as if we even used most of the Nightingale hospitals that were set up, even when we had 40,000 patients with coronavirus or with coronavirus-related conditions in hospitals. So the idea that the NHS is on its knees because of this virus and we need to lock down again because of the NHS, it just doesn't pass muster. It begins with a miracle treatment. These treatments were seen as a wonder drug to benefit all of us. Young lives injected with hope. This is going to transform your life. But the treatment's tainted. It contains a fatal poison. I came down with an illness where I basically passed out at work. And it starts to infect the very people it's meant to help. And then the damage began. Damage so far-reaching, it becomes one of the biggest medical disasters in history. Certainly hard to believe they sold all this product knowing it was infected. Join me as I trace it from the veins of innocent people back to a notorious American prison in The Telegraph's latest podcast. It's Bed of Lies Series 2 with me, Cara McGugan. A true story of greed, betrayal and deception. And it ends with a death sentence. In essence, they put money over life. Search Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. such a shocking, poignant week with the appalling murder of Sir David Amos in a church hall where he was meeting his constituents. On Monday, Liam, the House of Commons was at its united best, paying tribute to the wonderful, kind, impish, staunch Catholic MP for Southend East. The PM even announced that Southend would become a city, which was David Amos's dearest wish. For me personally, there were two standout speeches from friends of Sir David, Mark Francois and Andrew Rossendell. They are MPs for Rayleigh and Romford, respectively. Both, like David Amos, are proud working class Essex men, staunch Brexiteers. During the EU negotiations, you'll remember, co-pilot, these so-called Spartans rescued us from the purgatory of Theresa May's backstop, for which we should be eternally grateful. Their deep love for their mate, was touching the apparent. And Marc Francois called for David's law against anonymous online abuse, which has generated a lot of discussion. I thought that Planet Normal listeners would enjoy hearing Mark and Andrew reflect on an amazing parliamentarian, a lovely human being who's a loss to us all. I began by asking them where they were when they heard the terrible news. Well, I was actually overseas. I was uh, leading a parliamentary delegation and it came through by WhatsApp. Uh, Various people suddenly started texting me and we'd heard that David had been attacked. And 
I was completely shocked and quite distraught to hear the news. But it was only an hour or so later on the way to the airport that we heard the really devastating news that he'd actually passed away. So I don't think I'll ever forget that moment. I keep reliving it. And something's changed in my life. He's someone who's been a friend of mine for so long and has played such a part in my life has suddenly vanished and it doesn't feel right. I think everyone in the country felt some kind of almost chemical change when it happened. Mark, where were you? I I was at home. I was having uh, lunch with my partner, Olivia, and suddenly that, you know, I saw my phone go and it was James Tapsfield, the online editor of, you know, the, the political editor of the Mail Online. So, you know, so I took the call and he told me what had happened and I was just staggered. I just couldn't believe it. Some people might just think, you know, if a member of parliament dies, particularly in tragic circumstances, well, of course, people will be polite. It wasn't like that at all. I mean, the guy was genuinely loved. If I may say so, I think yesterday was the House of Commons at its best. Yeah. And you couldn't talk about David Amos without laughter and humour. And so one after another, this stream of anecdotes came out about this extraordinary bloke, you know, some of which even I didn't know. You know, David Evans' wonderful one about when he went to number 10 for the first time and asked Mrs. Thatcher for a tour. And, you know, then she, she said, all right, took him upstairs to the small flat above number 10. And he said, oh, this is a bit pokey or whatever. And then Evidence said, laconically, after that, I think his prime ministerial ambitions waned somewhat. I mean, just <laughs> the house was in fits. So I, I hope collectively, and Andrew spoke very well, as did a number of people, you know, James Dudridge, uh, it's invidious to pick out loads of names, but the house did really well. And I think it was uplifting by the end. It was a celebration of his life and not a dirge. It was. The Prime Minister said in what I thought was a wonderfully judged speech that David's views confounded expectations and defied easy stereotypes. I mean, we know he was on the right of the party, but he had a huge range of causes from fuel poverty to endometriosis. Andrew, he wasn't what people think of as a typical Thatcherite, was he? No, he was a real person. And that's why he was so loved by so many people, because he supported so many good worthy causes and he supported people in a genuine way he if he saw something was wrong he had an opinion you know he actually believed that something was wrong and was willing to do something against or to change something or to improve something he was that kind of person he wasn't the kind of mp that you went to and complained about an issue and he would just give you pay lip service and nothing would happen he was someone that would do things he was a doer he was someone who was passionate about the causes he was fighting for. I always felt that he was so energetic and so much younger for his age than he actually was. And there was no stopping him. You take him to any event, you turn up at something, he would he would always add life to any event and add humour. And people really did adore him. And I don't say that lightly. They really did. Everywhere I went, David was just popular and admired and loved and respected because he was just a really decent human being. There was a very funny moment in James Dudridge's speech where he where he said that David would often introduce him as an icebreaker by saying, "This is James Dudridge who's recently been released from prison." Which is a- you never ever knew what the guy was going to do next. I mean, you, you, one anecdote that didn't come out yesterday, just quickly, but I think a number of people will know it. But I'll tell it anyway. He was a great animal lover, as is Andrew, and me too. And so shortly after he was knighted, he got, you know, someone who ran an animal sanctuary to lend him a tame horse. He went to a costumier's and got a lightweight suit of armour. And for the mayor of Southend's annual civic reception at Porter's, he comes clod hopping up, you know, the gravel drive on this horse in a suit of armour. Right. And so there's the mayoral driver out sort of polishing the mayoral limo. And he looks up at David and says, Sir David, what do you think you're doing? And Amos says... I'm a knight. And then he somehow manages to dismount from this this horse and then walks into the mayoral reception and starts chatting to people just happening to be wearing a suit of armour. There is no other MP I know that would even imagine doing that, let alone do it normally. So just to reinforce Andrew's point, that's why he was loved on all sides of the house. That's why some of the warmest tributes yesterday came from Labour MPs. 
Yes. Andrew, you said that he looked down on no one. He was everyone's equal and he he didn't change his views in order to progress. Was that why in in 40 years in politics, he never got a sniff of a ministerial post because he wouldn't play that game? He, He was a character and an individual. He was somebody that wouldn't change who he was. Yeah, I mean, it's something, and Mark will know what I mean. There are some people in politics who it changes them. When they come into the house, they're one kind of person. A year or two down the line, they seem to be very different because they're adapting to the circumstances in order to climb what they call the greasy pole. Well, David would never do that. David was not somebody who would compromise his beliefs or his character or the way he did things. You know, he came up from ordinary background and you know, so did Mark, so did me. Uh, so the three of us did, actually. And, and I, I think that all three of us have very strongly held principles, and David was the same, and he would never compromise those things. He didn't hold ministerial office, and I think that was wrong. I think he should have been. I think he should have been given the opportunity. I'd love to have seen him as a minister. I think he would have contributed something really positive to government and to the party. And I I don't understand myself why it is that someone like David, who clearly had a huge amount of ability and passion and charisma, why we didn't give him a prominent role within the party and within government at some point. I wish they had it done. I think it's the party's loss that he was never given a ministerial job. David was certainly intellectually capable of being a minister, you know, more than capable. I can only guess that because he was so independent minded, because he always did the right thing as he saw it, perhaps they just thought he was too independent minded to do it because he just wouldn't do what he was told. Yes. Mark, you, in fact, you both talked about a sort of kinder politics. Coming on to that, that, that topic of abuse, You said that David Amos had become concerned about the vile misogynistic abuse which female MPs had to endure. And you issued a bit of a rallying cry. You said, if we want to ensure our colleague didn't die in vain, we can pick up the baton and take the forthcoming online harms bill and toughen it up. So let's put David's law onto the statute book. Can, Can you tell Planet Normal listeners what you envisage with that? Well, yes. I mean, some of the stuff that is online is just absolutely vile. And, you know, David and I talked about this quite a a number of times over the years, particularly recent years. And he and I had a conversation about this, you know, just a few weeks ago. And coming back to your earlier, you know, David was a man of action, as Andrew said. And he said to me, we've got to do something about this, Mark. But we never got to the point, unfortunately, where he was able to do something. So I I sort of took the liberty of charging the House of Commons yesterday that we should all do something because we're all affected by it. I mean, every MP can tell you these days, unfortunately, stories of threats to them and their families, sometimes even death threats, even, you know, to their kids, those that have them being abused in the playground at school. Look, there's a distinction. If as a member of parliament, you're so thin skinned that you can't put up with someone coming up online and saying, look, I don't think you're much cop as my local MP, then you're probably in the wrong job, to be honest. But there is a world of difference, a universe of difference between that and the example I gave yesterday of a social media post against Nadine Dorries, where someone said they wanted to see her burned to death in a locked car. I mean, no person in public life should have to go through that and the social media companies could clamp down on this but they don't and so I just issued a rallying cry that we should and I've had a lot of support from colleagues saying you know good for you mate and so we're now waiting for the online harms bill probably in the new year and then if that bill needs toughening up we'll toughen it up. You were very angry. I mean, I think it was justifiable rage and obviously built on the sorrow of of losing this very special friend. You said, the mood I'm in, Mr. Speaker, I'd like to drag Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Jack Dorsey of Twitter to the bar of the house, kicking and screaming to account for their actions. I said kicking and screaming if necessary. I'm sure if we ask them, they'd come (laughs) quietly. Yeah, go on. (laughs) Yeah, let's, let's drop in if necessary. Was that talking in the heat of the moment and and how realistic do you do you think that is and don't we get into very difficult area of censorship Andrew what do you think as well I agree we've got to do something but we have to tread a little bit carefully to make sure we don't actually 
curtail free speech in some way or where people, for instance, when they go online anonymously, some people do it for legitimate reasons. And I wouldn't want to see people persecuted or having to hide away because they're afraid of whatever circumstances they may be in. So we need a balance to it. Yeah, we do need to strike a balance. But, you know, Margaret Thatcher, of whom, you know, both Andrew and I and indeed David were great, you know, fans, once famously said she believed in a free society under a rule of law. So no one is talking about curtailing free speech. But for instance, I think, Alison, and one of your uh, journalistic colleagues shows this, Nick Ferrari this morning, I made a point about this on Nick Ferrari. And I said, you know, you have a lot of politicians come on. The next time one pops up, ask them what's the worst they've ever had, right? So half an hour later, on comes Anne-Marie Trevelyan. So Nick Ferrari says, well, while you're on, what's the worst you've ever had? And Anne-Marie said, well, as you asked me, someone threatened that they were going to burn my house down with my children in it. Now, what's that got to do with free speech? What's that got to do with the right of people to criticise government about whether or not to withdraw the £20 on universal credit or free school meals? It's nothing to do with any of that. But I'm afraid that the social media companies hide behind arguments about free speech and free expression in order to allow people in public life, not just MPs, but councillors, GPs, all sorts of people to be ritually vilified. And why don't they want to do anything about it? Because it would cost them money. I'm sure the House of Commons is perfectly capable of doing that. And we're perfectly capable of coming up with legislation which, on the one hand, protects legitimate free speech, but on the other hand, doesn't say people in public life and their children deserve to be burned to death. No, absolutely. Mark, Mark with respect, that your concern with the reform of the internet is admirable. We, we do have to recognise, don't we, that this was yet another apparent act of Islamist terrorism what do you think David Amos would have felt about that? And, and what would he like to have seen done about this horrible hatred that just springs up for a man such as himself, a good, loving Christian man who I'm sure w- would have accepted that the young man who seems to have been implicated in his death? This is a very sensitive area, um, but I'm afraid it has to be tackled. We have to confront this. Uh, David has lost his life. We don't yet know the full circumstances, so I don't want to speculate about why David was targeted, who the person was and why he did it. But it does look like, from what we've heard, that there is an Islamist approach to what happened here. And we should be uncompromising in our approach to defeating these people. Personally speaking, I do think we need to be much tougher in who we allow into our country. And we should be very tough about who we get rid of out of our country if they are criminals and if they do things to harm others. And if they're foreign nationals, then they should be thrown out of Britain. But I think we, the public do demand a much more robust approach in tackling this. I know that principle, Mark, and it's admirable. But the fact is that Joe Cox was killed in a, a, her constituency surgery. Now your beloved David Amos has been uh, killed in his constituency surgery. I know how much he loved seeing people face to face. Have the police or security services been in touch with you too to discuss? Yeah, they, they, they're getting in touch with all MPs. And, and, what, and what, what's the message? Well... Look, we've had this before when there's been issues. It happened after Joe Cox. They do get in touch. The police are very helpful. They they ask us questions. You know, they, they want to check our offices. They want to talk to our staff. They want to check where we live and give us advice. And, you know, we're busy people and, you know, we, we listen to what they say. But then we, we get on, we go about our business five minutes later. And I honestly, I really don't think there's any way of guaranteeing that we can all be safe round the clock. I personally think the answer has to be a negotiation between the MP and how they feel about it and the local police. I, th- I think that if I'm doing public engagements or surgeries and it's been publicised in advance, I think that if, if I feel that you know it's been publicised enough that anyone could turn up, and I'm not sure if it's going to be secure, if I say to my local police, you know, can you provide some protection on this day? I think there could be an arrangement that could be a way around it. But I don't think we can have protection around the clock because I don't know how it'd be funded for for a start. But also, I don't think we would want 
to feel that, you know, we've got someone with us around all day long. You know, we want our freedom too. So I think, again, it needs a balance. But I think an arrangement between the needs of the MP and the local police is probably the only way to deal with this. I think, Alison, this is the particular challenge for, for MPs because how do we strike the right balance? You know, people are talking about bodyguards and close protection. And, you know, are we really as MPs going to have some, you know, heavy with spaghetti coming out of the area, you know, accompanying us as we go down the bread island, Sainsbury's? And if we are, you could argue that the bad guys are winning because they want to separate us from our constituents. They want us to be a cast apart. They want us to retreat to a heavily guarded ivory tower because that then suits their purposes of undermining the link, which is fundamental to the British system between constituents and the people they elect to represent them. If we allow them to do that, they're winning and we're losing and we cannot let them win. David was obviously a, a wonderful family man. Can I ask how David's wife, Julia, and the children are doing? They, they did release a wonderful statement. Do you know how they are? I, I, I've been in contact with Lady Amos, and I, I hope your listeners won't be offended if, 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 if I don't go into the details of that conversation. No. Obviously, no, they're heartbroken. No. But but what I, what I think I can say is I thought their statement was incredibly courageous. And I summed it up, you know, in essence, as that, you know, love must conquer hate. And I thought, you know, for Julia and the five children, they, I think they worked on it collectively, to be able to issue a statement like that after what had happened to Sir David was one of the gutsiest things I've ever seen. And I think, you know, we, we could all learn from their example. And again, they they made the point, you know, really that hatred and evil cannot be allowed to triumph. And I think that, that you know, David with a strong place is in heaven. And I like to think that if he was looking down on his family, he would have been he would have been immensely proud of them. Yes, I, I, I was going to ask you, I thought if anyone's in heaven, it's your mate, David, isn't it, really? If anyone deserves to be there, God bless him. What would, what would you have wanted to say to him, Andrew? What would you say to him now? What would I say to him now? Oh, my goodness. I think it's probably, of, of anything in my life I, I can think of, it's probably the best example of... Of you of thinking to myself, you don't appreciate you someone when you've got them when they're suddenly not there. You know, I, I think to myself, I've known David forty years. He's like constantly there. He's always there. You know, I can phone him, text him. I can pop round his office and ask his advice. See him in the corridor. See him in the lift. And I always know if I go to David, he will help me. He will support me. He will turn up at an event. I had a big party and. August, my um, 20th anniversary as an MP. He was the only colleague, the only MP to turn up. And okay, it was mid-August, it was in Romford, but he came and turned up. And he stayed for a couple of hours and he met everyone and it was, everyone loved him. And I think to myself, now that he's gone, I actually think I, I probably took him for granted because, you know, he's not there anymore. And all those things, I just thought, oh, it's David. It's, it's just David. You know, it's always David. That's, that's how a lot of people, I think, thought because he was always there and he was so dependable. And now suddenly he's just not there anymore. And I think to myself, God, I'm so lucky to have had someone like that in my life and I'm going to miss him horribly. And I know Mark is going to feel exactly the same. Yeah. Yes. I mean, look, if David is in heaven, and I think we believe that he is, then if there are rules in heaven, he's already started to break them. <laughs> you know, whatever the conventions are up there, you can bet your bottom dollar that David Amos, one way or another, has started to work around them. I firmly expect that he'll be making the case for you two guys to be admitted. And Well, I'm glad he is because you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be some people who are. <laughs> can I just say that I was so moved and I wish I'd met him now because you both have made him sound so wonderful and so funny and such a life enhancer. And all I can say from Planet Normal is go on and be the men that David would want you to be. Bless you for that, Alice. That's a very sweet thing to say. We will try and remember that. Thank you. That was extremely moving, Alison. I've been quite profoundly affected by the death of David Amos. It's really made me think 
about who our public servants are and the the safety that they yeah they deserve. And it's also worth mentioning, isn't it, the sad death of James Brokenshire, former Northern Ireland Secretary, former Community Secretary, struck down by illness in the prime of his life. He was in his early fifties and leaves behind a family. I think both these losses are weighing heavily on the House of Commons and have struck a chord across the country. Yes, I think they have. I think I felt very emotional watching all the tributes in Parliament to David Amos because we haven't got enough good people, Liam, that we can afford to lose one like that. He was obviously a man of faith. And as with Luke Murphy, our wonderful guest last week, the thing that came out from both of those men, I think, was kindness, treating other people with dignity and respect. And I think that that really strikes you with force. I mean, there is this bigger issue, isn't there, about the online anonymity. The thing the thing I was trying to push them both about, really, we can't talk too much about the, the circumstances of the death of Sir David Amos, but I think we do need a bigger national conversation about the threat of Islamist terror. We can't look away, and I think some people have felt this week that there's almost an embarrassment about going there. I'm putting quite a lot of faith, Liam, there's going to be a forthcoming report by William Shawcross into the Prevent Strategy which is a sort of counter-terrorism strategy. And what we see again and again is we see a sort of human rights brigade on the far left who try to suppress legitimate counter-terrorism measures claiming that they're Islamophobic when they're there to protect everyone. So I hope that we can talk about that on Planet Normal again. But yes, it's a feeling of a great loss. And I thought what struck me so much about the, the parliamentary tributes really was that even though everyone was incredibly sad, they kept laughing because David Amos is such a, a funny, kind person. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. We had a bumper crop this week on the NHS and on the death of David Amos. This is from David. I was listening to Radio 5 this morning during a debate about whether we need to bring in more restrictions, and I was shocked when the host, Nikki Campbell, who I generally think is quite reasonable, described the Planet Normal podcast as quite out there. What? Being bothered about the well-being of children, the mental health of the population and shock horror, actually worrying about the economy, which is obviously heavily intertwined with those other considerations, is called out there. Is it really? If thinking for yourself is out there, then I'm an absolute lunatic. I'm also sick to death of people saying that anyone who doesn't wear a mask is selfish and probably not vaccinated because, to quote one Radio 5 listener, that usually goes with the territory. Uh, no, I don't wear a mask now, but I did for a year against my own preference because I was putting other people before myself. I also wasn't that worried about getting jabbed, but decided to get vaccinated, not because I was concerned about me. I'm relatively young, active and have no health conditions, so I was a little dubious about the benefit, but I opted to get it out of a civic duty to others, doing my bit for communal resistance to the virus. Having done that, and given the extremely high level of immunity we now enjoy, please don't berate people like me for finally taking our highly ineffective masks off. This is the kind of nonsense you get on planet Earth. So I'm in particular need of my planet normal fix this week. I don't think we're very out there, co-pilot, do you? Well, Nicky Campbell can get stuffed as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, slacking off our podcast on his on his radio show. <laughs> Here's one that caught my eye. Hi, Alison and Liam. My wife and I run a small manufacturing business. According to the Prime Minister, we're drunk on cheap foreign workers. Yes, we're drunk possibly, but on Boris Johnson's survival fluid, also known as wine. Until the UK left the EU in December 2020, workers from the EU were classed as neither foreign nor cheap under UK and EU employment law, as employers are obliged to offer equal opportunities, equal pay for the same job and not to discriminate against people on the basis of their protected characteristics. This remains the case, even with the UK now out of the EU. The PM also criticises us for not investing in British workers. If only we could. Local British workers want the money we offer, but they do not want the work because it's physical in nature. After 18 months of being paid not to work, the welfare and benefit system supports this lifestyle with a state will provide message that the remaining workers and businesses are expected to fund. Message to Boris. 
pushing wages up fuels inflation and does not result in better productivity. It will only work the other way around. Keep up the good work on Planet Normal. Are you thinking of going into space tourism? <laughs> Regards, Paul. Well, if we can take William Shatner with us, I think we'll start selling tickets. <laughs> Captain Kirk. Here's a couple on Green Britain. Tom says, Boris, you are a fool. We have no gas storage, wind farms that can't be recycled. We import fuel whilst you want us to consume electricity we don't have to power cars whose batteries will be landfilled and heating systems that can't heat. Absolute joke. And Mandy says... My husband has been reading about the tax hikes we'll be facing to cut down on our climate crisis. I think it's about time that Boris gets a reality check. We voted for Boris because he was the only one that promised to get Brexit done, nothing else. And if he doesn't stop listening to these climate change crazies and start talking to the people of this country about all this green nonsense, then I believe and hope he'll have a rebellion on his hands. This has to stop. The UK is not going to cause the planet to go into meltdown if it doesn't put through all these crazy initiatives that I don't believe any of us voted for. So now, because they're going to lose billions in tax, as no one will be taxing cars anymore because they won't be allowed petrol or diesel vehicles, they'll be taxed a lot more for their electric cars. So not only are we going to be forced to pay an absolute fortune for an electric car, have to have power points outside our houses, pay an extortionate amount of money for our electricity, and if we dare to own a boiler be it fuel or oil fired, an absolute fortune for that and to convert our houses for heat source or whatever. By the way, a heat source pump will never raise the temperature above 19 degrees. That is the most you can achieve and that takes 24 hours to build up. I remember saying a couple of years ago that when it gets to the point where you can't afford to heat your home, then what is the point? Food and heat are the most important things for normal people. And now we may struggle to do that. Perhaps you could whisper in Boris's shell-like for us all. This is one from Adrian. Dear pilots, love the show, the absolute go-to for common sense and all delivered with such grace and good humour. Just mega. In your interview with Luke Murphitt, he said something profoundly life-changing. Money opens doors and gives you choices, but so does kindness. I'm going to give that a lot of thought. God bless you all. With many thanks, Adrian. Oh, I do love a man in uniform, co-pilot. We've got a naval listener. How fantastic. And here on a subject I wrote about in my column this week, university students, is Amanda. I really appreciate the voice you give to young people and students who often feel ignored during the pandemic. Like you, I have children of university age, three at uni and one 11-year-old. Two have had their university severely disrupted through strikes and lockdowns. One is now suffering anxiety and depression. The other was already coping with the ADHD and dyslexia, so lack of routine and face-to-face -face interaction made her task doubly difficult and stressful. The third just started uni this year at Bath. He coped remarkably well with A-levels, but at uni is still required to wear a mask and has some online teaching for engineering. My fourth child, an 11-year-old who was healthy prior to the pandemic, was taken to hospital at one point with gastritis caused by anxiety during the disruption of opening and closing schools. As you can imagine, I'm totally against any further lockdowns and feel very strongly we need to protect the vulnerable whilst allowing the healthy to live their lives. The damage of isolating people is still not known or hasn't been quantified or even analysed as you both stressed. I'm currently reading a very important book by Johan Harry called Lost Connections. It's a real eye-opener to the reasons why depression may occur and how we need to treat it by bringing people together and how healing this can be. This is in stark contrast, of course, to the segregation we've imposed on people during the pandemic. The book was published in 2018, but perhaps we should have heeded the warnings given in this book before rushing to such lengthy periods of isolation. Thank you again for your humour, clarity, sanity, common sense and for being the voice of so many of us ordinary people in these extraordinary times. Uh, our absolute pleasure, Amanda. We're going to keep highlighting, aren't we, Liam, the plight of students who've really got the rough end of the stick. We certainly are. Lots of student listeners to Planet Normal, as it happens, Nikki Campbell. <laughs> so that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason. Oh, they must be all way out there. <laughs> or our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. It's my turn to pick, and I think it has to be Adrian for that lovely 
tribute to Luke Murphitt, our previous Planet Normal stowaway. Not that co-pilot Halligan ever bridles at criticism <laughs> from an unknown <laughs> presenter on Radio 5. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We're desperate because everyone thinks we're really good if we get a nice review. It does help others to find us so the marvellous Planet Normal family can grow. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Find the article labelled Planet Normal. Leave a comment beneath it. Keep it clear and I'll reply between 11am and noon. It is you, our fantastic Telegraph readers and Planet Normal listeners who make this podcast. We learn so much from you and often use your material the very next week. <laughs> you may do. <laughs> <laughs> so do keep emailing us. And on that bombshell, <laughs> as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.